Hello everyone. Welcome to EconoFact Chats. I'm Michael Klein, founder and executive editor of EconoFact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At EconoFact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, drawing on the contributions from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The economic fallout of the COVID-19 crisis has resulted in the highest unemployment rates since the Great Depression and the largest federal budget deficit and ratio of government debt to GDP since World War II. State and local governments have also taken a big hit. To discuss the effect of the economic crisis on state and local finances and what this means for the provision of vital services, I'm very pleased to be joined today by Michael Strain of the American Enterprise Institute. Michael is the Director of Economic Policy Studies at AEI, and he oversees the Institute's work in a range of economic policy issues. I'm also pleased to say that Michael is on the Board of Advisors of Econofact. Michael, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you on. Michael, let's start out by discussing the range of things that state and local governments finance. Well, the state and local governments finance a, a broad range of things. A, a lot of the things that uh, really touch people's lives uh, on a daily or weekly basis. Um, local governments finance teachers and schools, the police departments, fire departments, state governments uh, finance a portion of Medicaid spending. Um, they also help to finance uh, localities. So, you know, a large number of things, parks and, and, and all sorts of things that, that, uh, that, that people use and, and enjoy every day uh, and benefit from every day come from state and local government. So these are the things that really touch people's lives really very directly, and their absence would be tremendously felt, I imagine. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely right. I mean, if, you're, if your local school is laying off teachers, um, if, you're, uh, 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 if your uh, local government isn't uh, doing maintenance and keeping up with, uh, with public parks and things of that nature, those are going to be things you're really going to notice. And an economic downturn puts pressures on uh, government finances, state and local government finances especially, both by shrinking the tax base and also by raising the need for spending on social safety net services that the state and local governments provide. Um, what today is particularly putting these strains on state and local finances? Well, the, the big thing, of course, is uh, that states are seeing a, a big reduction in, in tax revenue. Um, and that's due to the uh, broader overall nationwide economic slowdown from the uh, from the pandemic recession. So states just uh, uh, are, are having much less money come in the door. At the same time, uh, the demands for state services have gone up again due to the pandemic and due to the pandemic recession. So Medicaid spending, uh, spending on food stamps and other safety net programs. Uh, programs like this are, are are seeing demand go up, so revenue is going down and spending is uh, spending demands are going up. 
And as you mentioned, the state and local governments are responsible for education financing. And with a focus on schools reopening, um, there's a fiscal side to that as well, where they have to prepare um, classrooms and so on in order to be able to accommodate the students and the teachers safely at this time. You had an article about this in um, recently in Bloomberg Opinion, right? Yes, that's right. Um, and, and you're exactly right about the, the demands. You know, state, schools need to do things to keep teachers safe and to keep students safe. Um, uh, you know, buy a bunch of hand sanitizer, buy a bunch of masks, install, you know, plastic shielding, these sorts of things. Uh, uh, you know, rearrange classrooms, uh, you know, convert the gym into, you know, a few uh, uh, classrooms, you know, put up some tents in the football field in order to have class outside. I mean, these are these are all the sorts of things that schools should be doing if they're looking to reopen and, and, and that many school districts are. Uh, but that requires money. And the football fields aren't going to be used for games. So I guess you can put the tents up there now. Sure, sure. Yeah. It'd be it'd be a better use of, of, of that space. <laughs> to, well, it depends to, on how you, you feel know. about football. Um, <laughs> but you also wrote about um, when we close schools, there's a real cost to that in terms of the um, education that's foregone by students. And there you know, is a cost along a number of dimensions. You in particular spoke about the economic dimension of foregoing schooling in that uh, Bloomberg opinion article. Yeah, that's right. So something that I think is not getting enough attention is uh, what are the longer term effects on the economic outcomes of students if they have to uh, you know, miss a, a year of school or uh, you know, if uh, shutdowns continue into the spring, you know, maybe even maybe even longer than that. Um, and, you know, if you, if you uh, believe that, uh, that an additional year of schooling is, is strongly correlated with higher wages, which, which is a, you know, extremely there's a lot of evidence of that, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, that's, you know, there's a, there's a, a mountain of evidence in favor of that. I think a, a consensus estimate among labor economists, you know, something like a 9% increase in wages for every additional year of schooling uh, you know, there's debate about the precise number, obviously, and and certainly debate about about the mechanisms behind that behind that correlation. But I think that's a that's a reasonable uh, a, a consensus estimate. Uh, you know, you're talking about uh, tens of thousands of dollars per decade in lost earnings uh, if if schools are closed again this fall. You know, along with last summer, I'm sorry, last spring, uh, and um, you know when you when you add that up, that you know that's that's both bad for individual students, but also bad for for uh, economies as a whole. And of course, there's also a childcare aspect to that. As the uh, as the parent of two young children, I'm sure you're very intimately <laughs> aware of that aspect. That it's not just the children, but also you know parents who um, can't find childcare because childcare centers are closed as well, and that impinges upon their ability to work also. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a um, uh, a major problem this fall if if schools are closed. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of parents are gonna have to stay home to facilitate uh, uh, home uh, virtual learning um, and, and just to keep an eye on their on their kids. Um, and uh, you know, some parents can't work from home, and so that means that they're they're gonna be you know in a really difficult situation. 
even parents who can work from home, I think I think we we learned from uh, our experience this spring that uh, a whole lot less work gets done if if you've got kids in the house who are who are trying to do virtual learning. And you know, my suspicion is that employers are going to be a lot less forgiving uh, uh, and accommodating of that of that of that circumstance this fall than they were in the spring. So it's gonna it's gonna take a big toll on on parents' economic outcomes if uh, if if the schools stay closed again. Sounds like you're talking somewhat from personal experience here. <laughs> the deep psychological wounds will right, right. heal. And I know you've spoken before about sort of these trade-offs. So, you know, um, maybe we do have to make an effort through, um, you know, different ranges of things like you were talking about to open schools. It's not so clear that we should be making the same effort to open bars or tattoo parlors or things that impinge less upon GDP and people's uh, well-being. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, if we if we open the schools in the fall, no matter how carefully we do that, and no matter how uh, extensive our safety precautions are, you know, that's going to increase the spread of the coronavirus. And so, you know, we need to be looking at at other less important parts of of normal life uh, where we can where we can uh, scale back those those activities to decrease the spread um, and bars and tattoo parlors seem pretty pretty high on the list you know if if our decision to allow bars and tattoo parlors to be open in may june and july means that we can't open schools in the fall you know that's that's a complete inversion of what our social priorities should be in my view uh, you know, much better, you know, close those activities down if, you know, if, if, if closing them down slows the spread, which means we'll have uh, some public health space to reopen schools in the fall. Um, returning now to the issue of state and local finances, um, there are differences in how hard different states have been hit by COVID-19 and in the economic consequences for those states. So I guess that means that there are also differences in the hit that those states um, and local areas finances have taken as well. Yeah, that's right. There's there's actually a really excellent Econofact uh, uh, article on this subject, um, and the authors find that uh, if you look at at uh, the upcoming fiscal year, fiscal year 2021, uh, state budget shortfalls range from four percent in Arkansas to thirty percent in New Mexico. So. A very a very wide range, um, but uh, but you know uh, also widespread trouble, uh, no matter what state you're looking at. Just to um, identify the authors of that, it's Alicia uh, Alicia Sasser Modestino, Michael Goodman, and Alan Clayton Matthews, um, all of whom are based in Massachusetts and have focused a lot on state budget issues. Um, thanks for bringing that up. How does this compare to what we saw during the Great Recession? Uh, the 2008, uh, beginning in 2008, in terms of state and local finances. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a little early to say, of course, because we don't we don't quite know what's going to happen with the uh, with the virus, and we don't know what's going to happen with the fall. Um, uh, you know, I think I think a lot of a lot of a lot of this uh, this the the history of this period really is is yet to be um, yet to be written. But if you look at the Great Recession, you know, you saw. Uh, uh, during that period, state revenues down by about ten percent. Uh, 
but in this case, the the downturn, the initial phase of the downturn is just is just much more severe uh, and and sudden. I mean, you know, sudden and severe really really characterize the pandemic recession much more so than the Great Recession. Uh, uh, you know, if you if you if you look at how long. Uh, if you look at the evolution of the unemployment rate, for example, which which you know tells you how the economy is doing, uh, it took about two years for the unemployment rate to double during the Great Recession, from five percent uh, in December '07 to ten percent in October '09. Uh, you know, the unemployment rate in the pandemic recession was less than four percent in February, and and you know, it comfortably in the double digits just 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 two months later. So. The downturn is much more severe, and 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 you and you've seen that reflected in um in in state uh, state revenues as well. And um recently, Ben Bernanke had an opinion piece. You know, of course, he was the chairman of the Fed during the Great Recession, and he was advocating for the support of state and local governments and saying that was um, very important during the Great Recession. Perhaps there wasn't enough of it back then, and we shouldn't be making the same mistake twice. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, states, uh, when states see these significant revenue shortfalls, uh, they uh, lay off workers. And when they lay off workers, that contributes to overall unemployment in the labor market. Uh, It suppresses consumer spending because those now unemployed uh, state and local workers have significantly less income to spend. Um, And it just it just slows down the overall recovery. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've we've seen Congress, I think, admirably during this period, attempt to replace uh, lost revenues for businesses, uh, lost income for households. You know, it's going to be very important in the um, in the next phase of congressional action that they uh, that they also uh, uh, step up to replace lost revenue for for state governments. And so some of our listeners might be. Wondering, Michael, you know, why don't states and local governments just run big deficits the way the federal government does? And the answer to that is, well, they uh, the answer to that is, is, is roughly speaking, they can't. Uh, right, right. They're bound by uh, balanced budget mandates. You know, of course, they can do creative accounting and they have rainy day funds and things of this nature. But you know, as you know, generally speaking, the 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 requirement that states have to run balanced budgets. You know, is a is a binding constraint, uh, and so when they see their tax revenue plunge, you know they have to they have to cut uh, cut expenses, uh, 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 in line with the with the decrease in revenue, and you know just like businesses and uh, in the federal government, um, payroll costs are a huge part of their of their expenses, and so and so they really kind of have no choice but to lay people off. Or get perhaps some more support from the federal government yeah. if that's forthcoming. Exactly. Yeah. Um, another issue that has, I know um, you've written about this as well. It's been an issue for a long time, but the pandemic has really brought it to the fore, is issues of um, the pensions that uh, state and local governments um, owe. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, so state governments still have uh, uh, defined benefit pension plans rather than defined contribution plans. Uh, and Can you just describe very briefly what that distinction is? Yeah, so a, a defined contribution plan is is um, you know 
likely the retirement plan that that people listening to this podcast have. It's a plan where you contribute during your working years money into a retirement account. Uh, and maybe you have an employer match or something like that. You know, maybe the funds are tax preferred in some way. Uh, but really the basis for your retirement fund are contributions that you make during your working years. And then you draw down uh, 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 that fund uh, in, in, in retirement. A defined benefit plan is uh, uh, very different. It's a plan that's based on your length of service. So, you know, you put in 20 or 30 years and, uh, you know, uh, for, you know, a, a state government entity or, or, or for a school district or something like that. Um, and you uh, receive an annuity in retirement um, uh, in exchange for that service. Uh, and that annuity is funded by the state or local government um, and not by contributions you made during your during your retirement, during your working years, excuse me. That used to be more prevalent in the private sector too, right? You know, generations ago, but pretty much it's only um, public sector employees who have defined benefit plans now. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. It used to be a lot more common um, uh, uh, in the private sector, but but now it's um, it's it, it's pretty much just uh, just governments that do this. And so, what's the source of this? Was it bad accounting? Was it bad investments that couldn't pay back? Was it just uh, you know? different policies? What what led to this problem even before the pandemic with uh, with public sector pensions? Well, it's a combination of things, uh, of course. Um, you know, some, you know, it's a, you know, some some factors are are certainly, you know, beyond the control of 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 state pension fund managers, you know, increased longevity, for example. You know, if you if you guarantee somebody, you know, Fifty thousand dollars a year for the rest of their life, and they end up living twenty years longer than than you think that they will. Um, you're going to be on the hook for a lot more money. Uh, there are some technical um, assumptions uh, about um, uh, interest rates and rates of return uh, on on funds um, as well that uh, you know have led to um, state and local governments putting in too little money. Up front, uh, and then and then the, and then there not being enough money available to meet their to meet their obligations uh, uh, later on, and so you know it's it, it's a bunch of factors, but 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 look, of course, I mean, in several states, you know, Illinois being one, Kentucky being being another, you know, but you know, both a blue state and a red state, um, there there have been just you know very poor management of these of these pension funds, um, and. That's led to them being significantly underfunded uh, and unable to meet their obligations. And of course, all of this is exacerbated by the precipitous decline in the economy, and it's only making problems that were bad before much, much worse now. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so Michael, it seems like there are you know basically three choices: cut spending, raise taxes, or get more money from the federal government which unlike the state and local governments, uh, it can borrow. What are your thoughts about how the mix of these options should be used at this time? Well, I think, uh, I think it would be prudent to avoid tax increases um, because that would dampen consumer spending and, and weaken, weaken the recovery. Uh, you know, if there are areas for state and local governments to cut spending prudently, you know, I think that's something, of course, that that should be that should be looked at, but 
you know, again, if, if cutting spending means laying off hundreds of thousands of workers, then that's going to be bad for, for, for the economy as well. Um, and so really, you know, I think, I think the, the best thing right now is for the federal government to provide some broad-based grants to state governments uh, that can be used for a variety of things, you know, not to be used to shore up mismanaged pension funds, but that can be used for, uh, for uh, many other purposes. So state and local finances, you know, often seem to get less attention than the headline grabbing um, fiscal, federal fiscal situation. But you've pointed out in very important ways how it really touches people's lives and the consequences can be quite dire for so many people. So thanks very much for speaking with me today on Econofact Chats, Michael, and shedding light on these very important issues. Thanks so much for having me on, and, and thanks for the great work that Econofact is doing. It's an invaluable resource. Thanks. Thanks for saying that, and thanks for serving on the board. Best wishes.